This is James Coover with K-State Research and Extension's Wildcat District with your Extension Crop Report. This summer has been a lot of talk about forages. The extreme drought last year left many forage fields badly damaged, and many livestock owners considering transitioning fields to a new, highly production forage crop, alfalfa being a commonly considered one. Alfalfa is considered the queen of forages. Although labor-intensive crop, it produces large quantities of high-protein and highly digestible forages in the 3-5 to five year rotation. Alfalfa doesn't have the general markets, but it can be a profitable crop sold in a number of niche markets, like dairies, goats, and horses. But it also fits into many cattle operations as a supplemental winter protein. Generally, fall alfalfa planted happens around mid-September, and planting in the fall has a variety of benefits. First off, weed pressure is lower in the fall, and young alfalfa does not compete well with weeds. Fall germinating weeds are usually easier to kill with herbicides. They don't have the incredible growth and herbicide resistance like some of the summer annuals do. Another advantage is fall planted alfalfa is better developed when going into the dry summer months. However, one downside to fall planted alfalfa is that we don't always get the rain needed for a good germination, so it has to be timed right. Alfalfa starts off slowly, but ideally alfalfa needs 3 to 4 trifoliate leaves before surviving the winter. It is important to prepare it completely before alfalfa is planted as it is a nutrient-intensive crop. Although it makes its own nitrogen, it basically mines some potassium and phosphorus from the soil. Since neither phosphorus or potassium are mobile, adequate soil nutrient levels before planting will increase production and lessen the need for heavy top dressing in later years. Alfalfa is also very sensitive to pH more than any other crop. A pH above 6.4 is nearly a requirement before starting an alfalfa field. Take an accurate soil test now so proper amounts of lime and fertilizer can be applied before planting in just a few weeks. Traditionally, alfalfa, like many small seeded crops, need a firm and smooth seed bed so the small seeds are planted at the right depth. Although it is possible to no-till plant them after a row crop, one thing to check is for herbicide carryover from corn is compatible with alfalfa. It is also possible to get a stand from broadcast seeding followed by a soil packer, but this is somewhat unreliable and can make for an uneven stand. Another planting trick is to plant it with a spring oat nursery crop to keep it the soil in place. Alfalfa is not just for crop fields either. Alfalfa and clover are commonly interseeded into pasture to improve forage quality. However, it does make herbicide applications tricky so only spot spraying can be done after a stand is established. When choosing an alfalfa variety, it's important to get the right kind, and it's one of the few times I'll suggest spending the money for a good one, largely because there is now a lot of variation in varieties, and it's a four to five year commitment. Besides glyphosate resistant, which can be an important aspect, there are also a number of improvements that have been made recently, like resistance to aphids and some of the common fungal diseases. Like soybeans, alfalfa follows a number system, and in southern Kansas, we use a 4 to 5 rated variety. If you have any questions about getting your alfalfa started, please give me a call at 620-724-8233. This has been James Coover with your Extension Crop Report. Next up, we'll have Wendy Powell, Livestock Production Agent for the Wildcat District. Hi, this is Wendy Powell, your Livestock Production Agent with Wildcat Extension Producers managing weaned cattle recognize the stress of the event and its components, shipping, commingling, new feeds, and so on, creating a perfect storm for loss of production and disease risk. Preconditioning programs reduce the number of stressful situations a calf has to deal with while moving through the phases of the industry. 
designed by universities, pharmaceutical companies, marketing groups, or integrated production chain alliances. The overall target is the same, decrease the risk of disease. Yet specific requirements can vary widely, like the use or ban of specific products or ingredients. Castration and dehorning at the feedlot will decrease feed intake and increase the risk of disease. When these practices are completed earlier in life, the negative effects are reduced. Vaccination programs decrease the risk of viruses like bovine respiratory disease and are key components of preconditioning programs. Weaning on the ranch of origin for 30 to 45 days is a common component. Calves face relatively low levels of disease challenge because they're not trapped or commingled during the stressful period immediately following separation from their dams. A grain-based feed delivered in a feed bunk may also be part of the process, training cattle in the low-stress environment of the home ranch. Adequate nutrition after weaning is critical to allow the animal to overcome stress and disease challenges. Body condition scoring is commonly used to gauge previous management. Holding calves for four to six weeks hopefully results in cattle with good condition scores indicating good health. On the flip side, these fleshier calves may garner a price discount because buyers will be unable to capture compensatory gains. The goal is to find a balance between healthy calves and the potential for rapid, efficient weight gain. Adding practices such as dehorning and castration, vaccination, weaning, and starting on a grain-based diet are designed to reduce the risk of disease once an animal has left the ranch. But these activities will increase costs. In order to benefit, producers must increase their income received. Preconditioned calves routinely receive a higher price than similar calves. Cow-calf producers may face obstacles to implement these practices due to lack of facilities and labor or a reluctance to bear the health risks of post-weaned calves. Low-cost feedstuffs may not be available for low cost of gain. To overcome these legitimate barriers, producers must be able to utilize cost-effective weaning, working, and feeding facilities, obtain feed at a competitive cost, grow the calves quickly to allow a low cost of gain, and sell at a rewarding price. Another supportive factor of these programs is the consumer focus on management gaining attention. To learn more about preconditioning livestock, give me a call at the Labette County Extension Office, 620-784-5337. Thanks, Wendy. And now, here's David Scrantz, Natural Resource and Diversified Ag Agent, with her report. This is a David Scrantz, one of the Agriculture and Natural Resource Agents from the K-State Research and Extension Wildcat District of Crawford, Labette, Montgomery, and Wilson Counties with your K-State Research and Extension report. If you are considering planting a winter food plot, Knowing the nutrient levels of the soil before planting will help you determine if you need to add fertilizer to the soil. Correct soil sampling in the field is essential for an accurate soil test and consequently for an optimum nutrient management program. To obtain a proper soil sample, there are a few guidelines to follow. Start with the right equipment. You will need a soil probe, a clean bucket, and a few plastic bags or soil sample bags. The extension offices have soil probes 
that you can borrow to collect your soil sample. Map it out. Draw a map of the sample area and divide it into uniform areas. Each area should have the same soil texture, color, slope, and fertilization and cropping history. Start sampling. For the standard pH, buffer pH, P, and K test, sample 6 inches deep and take 10 to 15 core samples from each area. Moving in a zigzag across the area will help to get a more representative sample. Mix thoroughly in the clean bucket. Fill your soil collection bags from this mixture, making sure that there are about two cups of soil in each bag. For available nitrogen, chloride, or sulfur tests, take the same number of cores, but a subsoil sample to a depth of 24 inches is necessary. It is also important to note that if a zinc test is requested, use a plastic bucket for soil collection as galvanized or rubber materials may contaminate the results. Places to avoid. Avoid taking samples from old fence rows, dead furrows, low spots, feeding areas, or other areas that might give unusual results. If information is desired from these unusual areas, obtain a separate sample from that area. Label. Be sure to label the soil container clearly. Record the sample identification on the container and the information sheet. Keep records as to where the soil samples were taken and the name that was given for each sample. Send samples. Once all the soil is collected from these desired areas, take the samples to your local K-State Research and Extension office. We will then send the samples to the K-State Soil Testing Laboratory to be analyzed. Generally, you can expect results back within two weeks. From the K-State Research and Extension Wildcat District, this has been a Dave Strauss with your K-State Research and Extension Report. Thank you, Adavin. And now, here is Jesse Gilmore with his report. With K-State Research and Extension's Wildcat District, this is Jesse Gilmore bringing you this week's edition of the Hort Report. Fall coloring trees is right around the corner, but some trees might end up being disappointingly dull, and it's not necessarily the tree's fault. Fall color has many determining factors, but the one that plays the biggest role is actually the amount of sunlight the tree gets in the two weeks prior to color change. If the sunlight is frequent and intense, the fall color will be as well. This is because the tree spikes photosynthesis as a last effort to produce as many sugars as possible for dormancy. The more sunlight that ends up hitting the leaves, the more sugars can be produced and the stronger the color will be once the chlorophyll is destroyed. If instead the weather remains cloudy or rainy, fewer sugars are produced and the leaves will be a paler color. While this can be disappointing for those of us who enjoy bright fall leaves, this won't negatively impact the long-term health of the tree in any meaningful way. Fall is recommended as the best time to buy and plant trees, one of the reasons being the opportunity to see the fall color of a tree before purchase. While keeping in mind the previous facts about weather's impact on fall color, trees that still show bright fall color after marginal weather will likely always show that color. However, this should not be the only reason why you opt for an individual tree. Susceptibility to leaf diseases by the species will impact how many leaves the tree will have come autumn, and you should not ignore structure issues or other red flags just because the leaves have good fall color. 
Tree selection relies on a combination of factors of which color is one of lesser importance. If you're looking for trees that default to stronger fall colors, look for red and sugar maples, sweet gums, ginkgos, black gum, and service berries. Downed leaves provide a good organic matter source for compost bins or mulch in the yard, but it's important to not overapply leaves in either scenario. Compost requires three parts brown matter to one part green matter, so although there will be plenty of leaves, you cannot leave green organic matter like grass clippings out of the formula. The best way to use leaves in compost is to mow your yard once some of the leaves have fallen and bag the clippings, depositing them into a compost bin or pile once the bag fills. This will give you a rough 3 to 1 ratio and cut the organic matter up into smaller pieces, which will help the compost break down faster. If you don't compost, remove the bag from your mower, and mowing over the leaves will mulch your yard with the broken up pieces of the leaves. Be aware that too much mulch will build up the thatch of your yard, which can cause root health issues. Fall is also the time to care for fescue lawns, so aeration might be necessary if you have allowed your lawn's thatch to build up for multiple years. Leaves should not remain on grass for too long as they can choke out turf if they are too thick. Instead, consider moving them to garden beds where they make a good insulation for more tender plants once winter rolls in. For more information on today's topic, contact your local extension office. I can be reached at 620-724-8233 or by email at jr637 at ksu.edu. Once again, this has been Jesse Gilmore bringing you this week's Hort Report. Thank you, Jesse, and thank you for listening to K-State Research and Extension's Wildcat District Ag Team on KGGF 690 Radio.